Greg Shepard, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is Inside the Glass Box, and today what we want to do is talk a little bit about Boss Capital Partners, learn about your investment methodology, and uh, see if our listeners might be able to learn a little bit. So um, to, to begin, tell me a little bit about how you got into the investment field. Sure. So I started actually as a serial entrepreneur, so I've done... Uh, several different startups and brought them to an exit, uh, most notably and recently, uh, I sold a company as part of a cross-border transaction to uh, eBay Marketing uh, Solutions, which won what, four private equity awards uh, for transactions. It was a $925 million transaction where we bought uh, 12 companies, uh, bought two of my companies, and then sold 12 and then merged uh, three more all together to create one platform. Okay. And uh, that, that sort of, uh, you know, that sort of, you know, changed my world from uh, looking at things from a serial entrepreneur pers- perspective to getting into helping entrepreneurs. And I, I guess the, the biggest reason why I did that is because uh, I think that, you know, entrepreneurs make the future. So, you know, we come up with, what is the future and we also help with wealth distribution if you build a company and sell it and you make money um, usually those entrepreneurs are more generous too so it's just a it became my passion yeah it certainly seems like in today's era uh it's the great it's it's the fastest way to uh create wealth entrepreneurs have tremendous opportunity in this era and uh you seem to have, have demonstrated the, the potential of that with um, the story that you just mentioned. So tell me a little bit about that company. You, you said it was kind of a, a, a platform-based uh, business where you had bolted on some different, different companies. Uh, yeah, I mean, I built a lot of companies. This particular company was a uh, ad tech platform. Um, it was a MarTech ad tech kind of blend uh, in the performance marketing space. And, it was built up sort of taking advantage of a, of the uh, lack of innovation from the side of the, uh, the, the major, you know, the major platforms that were in the space at the time. So tell and, me, uh, when you, when you say performance marketing, is that like a segment that you're marketing to or a type of marketing? It's a type of marketing. So it's, it's marketing where uh, the advertiser and the publisher, the publisher posting the ad, the advertiser trying to sell something, uh, pays based on a percentage of the sale. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the majority of, um, so, I mean, if you look at the, the advertising space, you have search social display and affiliate and affiliate is performance advertising. Okay. So you're just, okay. So just another, another term for affiliate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Got it. Um, so I built the, the first, uh, agency in the space and then I put a, a platform, uh, behind it. And then I was also the first one to go global. I had offices in five countries. And then I was the first to get acquired, um, you know, and then we, uh, I had another company that I had started at the same time that was uh, in the ad compliance space called AdAssured. And after uh, they bought my first company, Affiliate Traction, then uh, we did the transaction and then they bought my second company, AdAssured. And then I was brought on as uh, CSO, Chief Strategy Officer, to sort of 
figure out what direction this whole thing was going to go in. And then after that was done, then I was converted into a CTO uh, to build the platform. And after that was done, uh, I retired and, and started uh, building Boss Capital Partners, which is a, a syndicate investing into Series Seed startups. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into talking about that. But um, I'm curious, as I think some of the listeners will be too, as to, you know, this exit that you had, because it, it's pretty massive. I mean, you're close to a billion dollar sale to eBay. Um, and I, and I want to understand that business because I feel like I'm sure there's expertise you gained in that transaction that's applicable to what you're doing with boss capital. Now, was this like a, like a aggregation of, of an affiliate sites that was sold to eBay or what, when you say ad tech, can you give me kind of the layman's explanation of Sure. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sure. Yeah. So there MarTech is marketing technology. So this is like HubSpot and things like that. Right. And ad tech is more like advertising, which is tracking. So ad tech is more along the lines of tracking, you know, clicks and sales and all that kind of, you know, uh, analytics, et cetera, et cetera. And MarTech is more about marketing in the first place. Right. So, um, you know, what, happened when I started that, uh, that the, there was no real ad tech. It was just really, really rough. Uh, you know, we would sort of, uh, at the time search engines would give you credit if you had had backlinks to like sites. So people would go and put in link pages and try to get everybody to link to each other. And then it got so competitive. People started to say, Hey, how about I pay you? And that's how affiliate started. I'll pay you every time you make a sale. And then you give me more exposure on your website. And this sort of divided up those people that were posting ads by generating content that people wanted to look at and those that were trying to sell products and services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why was your company so valuable to eBay? Well, there, there was a lot of, I mean, you know, the, the transaction was, you know, eBay had developed as a company that was playing in their normal uh, site that everybody knows, you know, the auction uh, marketing platform that they have, you know, that marketplace. Right. Um, but during Meg Whitman's period there, they had expanded out and they started buying, you know, they bought Magento, which is one of the largest e-commerce platforms. And they bought analytics platforms and they bought affiliate network and they bought, I mean, all these different things. And they were going to kind of try to go into more the, the e-commerce space and expand away from just being eBay to being the e-commerce space. Well, when, when that management team changed over, the new management team said, listen, really, really eBay is eBay, uh, the eBay, the platform, eBay enterprise marketing solutions and PayPal. So they decided because PayPal had become this behemoth that, you know, uh, was created and they wanted to peel it off. So they were going to split these two things off. Now they had paid $2.5 billion for these companies and they were going to sell them for 925 or 985 million. And sort of the way that they went about this is sold PayPal off, sold these other assets off. And then eBay and PayPal became the dominant leaders. During that time period, uh, there was all these companies, 14 companies that made up eBay Enterprise Marketing Solutions. And one of those companies was an affiliate network 
that we were partnered with that I had been integrating with and working with along the journey of uh, what I have in my operating system, the boss, the business operating support system, which is what the book is about that's published by Forbes later on uh, this year and what I speak about and they teach at the universities now and all this. So <clears throat> that, that had sort of created this partnership the whole time with this, with this company. And when this transaction was going to happen, they came to me and they said, Hey, listen, um, you know, we want to do this, this transaction, but we're missing some pieces in order to make something that's totally complete. And that's how it happened. Okay. So the, you said that eBay had this affiliate network um, category of, of businesses, right? Um, did, was that um, was that designed with the intent of getting into the e-commerce space, and then they backed away from that later on? Well, sort of. They they bought a uh, they bought a roll up of of different companies. So so there was a, a, a guy named uh, Mark, and I'm just trying to remember his last name, and I can't at the moment. But he he purchased all of these different fanatics and. You know, it was it was just Pepper Jam. It was uh, Clear Sailing. It was uh, Radial. It was you know, it, it, I mean, it was to haul all these companies. Fetch Bash. I can't even remember them all now. But um, and these different companies handled different parts of the customer's journey and the advertiser's journey as they. And so the idea was to have an end-to-end -end solution for advertisers and publishers to work in with all these different companies but it didn't work out the way they had planned it. They couldn't get these companies to integrate together very well. And it just became a sore, you know, for eBay, just this kind of mess. So they, they just offloaded it. You know, the thing is when big companies try to absorb a roll up, it's very difficult if that roll up hadn't already been integrated prior to the acquisition. Right. Um, so they uh, thought they could, you know, get this thing integrated. It just never was. So, you know, when they, when they left it behind, it was sort of like a fire sale. And so there was a lot of money to be made. The, uh, you know, the, the private equity groups made hundreds of millions of dollars on this thing. I mean, Magento alone sold to Adobe for, I think, $3.6 billion. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's just one of the companies. So, you know, this was a, a, a really, a really big play, extremely complicated. I was right in the middle of all of it. Um, it was, it took three years just to sort of untangle things, sell off these pieces, get everything cleaned up and integrated. Uh, it was, it was very, very complicated. I think it's important to note too, because if your listeners are entrepreneurs, you know, having what I call in boss, the business operating support system, the North star is critical because if I hadn't had that North star and been integrating with, you know, these different platforms the entire time. I wouldn't have been pulled into that transaction. You know, it would have happened, but I wouldn't have been pulled into it. So tell me, okay, so let's, yeah, let's, let's kind of move on and talk about the boss operating system that you just mentioned. So tell me, tell me a little bit about kind of your, um, your upcoming book and, you know, the 30,000 foot view of, of the philosophies discussed within it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, you know, after 25 years and 15 startups and multiple investments and 100% success rate, it, you learn a lot, right? And you, you learn by trying different things. And everybody's heard of the Six Sigmas and the 4DX and the OGSM, and the OKRs, and 
so on and so forth, and all these different what I call operating systems. And there's all these tools out there, like you know your SWOT and your one day strategic plan, and you know the all these different systems out there. So what I did is I tested all these systems for 25 years, and I tested them in different stages in a business and in different functional areas in the business. And then I added some of my own flavors to it. And by doing that, what I ended up with was this thing, Boss, that I just used myself. Uh, and after I you know, got to the point where I was like, I need to, I changed my sort of perspective on things. And I said, I want to help more entrepreneurs succeed, period. Mm-hmm. That's my whole life goal, right? Is to help more of them succeed. And I realized that the ecosystem is broken right now because when you're an investor, you vet on the horse or the jockey. And if you bet on the jockey, that's a mistake because the jockey is asking for cash because they haven't done it before. So you really have to bet on the horse and then you have to have the, the ability to help the jockey because they've never done it before. You know, so let me let me stop you there because I want to understand that analogy. So in the horse and the jockey example, I'm assuming, you know, the jockey is the entrepreneur, right? Yeah. The jockey um, is the entrepreneur. and The horse is the platform is the product. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So when you, you know, as an investor, investors will say, oh, you're betting on the management team. You're betting on the management team. But the fact of the matter is if that management team is looking for money, it's because they haven't had an exit yet. And if they haven't had an exit yet, it means that you should probably shouldn't be betting on them because they've never done it before. Now that doesn't mean that you don't need them and you don't put some on that. But really what I look for as an investor is a really good platform and then a management team that's open to learning and willing to, to try different things to make things work. Because that's why, you know, these entrepreneurs fail all the time. You go to an incubator, you go through, you know, through the ideation period, you understand how to put together a deck. I look at probably 200 of these a month. Mm-hmm. And so they have a good deck and they pitch the deck. And then I ask, okay, what's your actual plan? They don't have one. Have you done <laughs> this before? No. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they don't know what to do next. So now, you know, and this is not their fault, right? It's not their fault at all. So now you get this amount of money that you fund them with and they burn through the capital because they don't know, right? They, they haven't had this happen before. They don't know what is going to happen. And then they ask for more money mm-hmm. and more and more and more and more down the line. And every time they ask for money, they kick out the exit. And at the same time, they also dilute themselves. Mm-hmm. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to make some money on a deal and you say to yourself, you know, a lot of times when I talk to entrepreneurs, they'll say, I want to sell for, you know, a hundred million. Just, just use that number. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. But I don't care how much they want to sell for. I, I care how much they want to make mm-hmm. because you can sell for 500 million and make a million or you could sell for 50 million and make 10 million. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I do is I say, how much do you actually want to make? And then we design a program starting with the North Star that gets them what they need by holding back and directing the company in the right place. So what I mean by that is if we back up and we talk about the North Star, the North Star is made up of, of a few different steps. The first thing is, what is your company? That's description, feature, benefit. And what is your business? Your, what is your company selling the product description, feature, benefit? And then why should somebody buy it? That's problem, solution, impact on the company and on the product. And then who? And who is really important. And when you do who, that's the ideal customer profile and the ideal buyer profile. That's the buyer of your business. And what I tell people all the time 
And I'll give you an example. There's a company that I just sold a couple of weeks ago, had about $2.2 million in, in revenue and sold for $48,750. Mm. And so when I guided this company, I told them, I said, listen, is your buyer buying your, your company to make or save money? They, people buy products and services and people buy businesses to make or save money, period. Mm -hmm. And first. And second, are you taking advantage of an opportunity or are you solving a problem? Mm -hmm. Once you define those two things and you're raising capital, you can raise capital for a specific thing. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. If you are a business that are selling to another business, that other business likely has a whole bunch of customers already. Maybe they have 5,000 customers. Each one of those customers has an ideal customer profile. And if you on your side go and you raise a bunch of capital and then you go get yourself a hundred customers and you burn all kinds of money and raise capital to get a hundred customers, that buyer could give a shit about your hundred customers. They have thousands. Right. What they want to know is can they sell your product to their existing customers because they've already absorbed the customer acquisition costs for those customers. Right. And the way they leverage that and get a better customer acquisition cost to lifetime value ratio is by selling more products to them. So if you think about a strategic acquisition, these things that your whole business as an entrepreneur is just a product to them. Therefore, they don't really care about the rest of the business. So all you have to do is spend enough money to make sure that you can prove that their customers buy your product. And then you piggyback on the gains that they're going to make and that adds to your multiple. Now, what most people do, uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, under the advice of the, uh, of the uh, investors and advisors that are in the business is they go, grow, 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 and they, and they keep on piling money in, piling money in, and they grow and they grow and they grow. And then they turn around and they can't sell the business because the valuation is higher than the business is worth. Mm -hmm. They've acquired customers that aren't the same ideal customer profile as their buyer, so the buyer doesn't care about them anymore. And now they're all by themselves, all out there you know, with highly diluted businesses at valuations far above where they should be. And they're not, you know, in a position where they've designed themselves to sell. Yeah. That, you know, th this is a fascinating uh, conversation, you know, because I think a lot of people, especially those listening to this podcast that are kind of um, early stage entrepreneurs do believe that, you know, their revenue, it's important to drive their revenue up. And, and what you're saying is, hey, you know, driving that revenue up may not be the right approach if it's going to cost you a lot of extra time. It's going to cost you a lot of extra equity. And, you know, you've already proven <clears throat> that your product can be sold to the customers of your strategic buyer. Right. So, so you think about it and you say to yourself, okay, if you are a business and you are making a product to solve or take advantage of an opportunity for a specific customer segment, mm -hmm. and then you go out and you prove that you can sell to that segment, that that segment will buy it. That's called attachment rate. So let's say that your base is, let's say you're selling to XYZ company and XYZ company has 10,000 customers. Could be Salesforce, whoever, right? Right. And then you design a product that, is for that exact customer. And then you create, you spend all this money getting market share, getting market share, you know, and all that. And then you turn around and sell to them. 
they don't really they don't care about that right and they're not thinking about that right they're thinking their their entire numbers on the back end are saying they're going okay if we buy this company what percentage of our base let's say 25,000 customers are going to buy this and they're going to say okay 50% that's what's called the attachment rate yeah so now they go back and they say, okay, well, 50% of your customers, and they're doing, they're not telling you this is happening, but this is what they're doing behind the scenes. So, and, and you know, I ran into this, right? Because I worked on my business. I built up sales and revenue and all this. And then I circled back around and I was like, oh shit, man, if I would have known this early on, I wouldn't have spent all that money and caused all that dilution. I would have just proven out that my customers buy their products. And I would have got that attachment rate as high as possible. Right. It's called NICP sales and retention. Yeah. Now businesses buy business because of growth, margin, and retention. Those are the three value drivers that you have. Yeah. Growth says people want to buy your product. Retention says it's sticky and people will continue to pay for it. And margin says you could do it at a profit. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is prove those things on an attachment rate to an ICP that matches up with your ideal buyer. And then you can drive your business to a sale. I exit businesses in three years at two to five X typically to the investors, right? That's my whole, you know, play. Yeah. And we do it faster with less money and less dilution to everybody, including the founders, because from the very beginning, we understand who's going to buy the business and every dollar we spend is driving towards those ideal buyers. So there's three to five different buyers. And so we're constantly driving, building the business for them. And you have three to five. And if you do a good job figuring out who those three to five are, then, you know, you're, you have a high, high probability of being able to sell to one. Let me, let me go back for a second to this case study. I mean, this is a really fast fascinating uh, part of the conversation. Like I mentioned a second ago. So this case study that you mentioned where, you know, you, you had a company with 2 million and change in revenue and you sold it for 48 million what would have what would it have cost the buyer to develop out the product or technology that was the core of that company you sold yeah so the way you think about it is that that buyer had been trying to build that for for years for mm-hmm. you know 5 6 years they had been trying to build it big companies usually are not very good at building products efficiently entrepreneurs are so right. big companies traditionally buy something that they want instead of uh, you know, go out there and try to make it on there. And think about you as an individual, right? If if you want to buy a microwave, you don't try to build it, you buy it because it's to you, it's way easier and simpler. You just go acquire what you want. Mm-hmm. So if you're some big company, right? And you want to, you want a product, a specific part product, like in this case, it was a, a tracking system for a tracking system for transportation that added, the ability to pay and reload carts and stuff for trains and buses and ferries and everything on the cloud. And you try to build it. You've got 60, 70 engineers doing something. Whereas the entrepreneur over here may have three and they're going to do it a lot faster. Their motivations are different. They understand how to get gritty and make something happen. The people are all, you know, starving, trying to make something happen. You've got 60 engineers over here working at this other company that are leaving at three o'clock in the afternoon, you know? You know, I've I've worked, I've worked in a uh, large broker dealer that was trying to develop some technology. And I can, you know, think of a scenario that directly applies to what you're saying, where, you know, it just, it was a, 
was a nightmare getting anything developed within that firm because, you know, they're just, first of all, you don't have the same kind of motivation on the part of the engineers that you do on the part of the entrepreneur. Um, Well, everybody, I mean, everybody, you know, everybody in the company is going home to their house and their family and they've got a paycheck and everything's okay. There's, there's no, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, it takes a lot longer to pivot when things are not being done right. You know, then you have all these meetings and everybody has to weigh in. And, you know, if you're going down the wrong path and you need to change direction, it's like, it's like riding the ship is very, very difficult in a large company as opposed to the entrepreneur that can much more quickly course correct and, and fix what needs to be done and, and get to the, the finish line more quickly. So I can relate to all of that. I, I guess I'm just trying to make sense out of, you know, why a big company would pay such a hefty premium, even, even with all of those things taken into consideration, because $48 million is a, is a big price tag. So you could put a lot of engineers on this product or this project. And, you know, I'm sure develop out something very similar for less cost. But I guess, you know, the way I'm kind of thinking that this deal must have gone down is, you know, the buyer must have said, hey, you know, if I spend even six months, let's say, developing the software, there's an opportunity cost to that, you know, as opposed to plugging in what you've already got, uh, Mr. Target company, you know, I could plug in your software and I can start generating revenue immediately. Uh, and, you know, the the difference between you know, what I can make in a year, let's say with your software that I just buy versus building mine and then, you know, starting to generate revenue a year later, you know, maybe that's where, where the, the valuation. No, it's a combination of different things. So like you can say, for example, that this company tried it, right. And when a company, a, a larger company tries to do, even, even trying to do something like that, they spend a lot of money on that, right? So they already spent a ton of money and they have no success on it. In that same amount of time, the other company is almost done with their product. And these, yeah. the first company, you know, the, the acquirer has just gotten started. The other company is almost done. Yeah. So now while the other company is now that just got started, the acquirer is starting to move forward and bringing their, their company to market. The other company already has it to market and has already proven it out. So now the acquirer looks at it and they say, listen, I've already made this. It's totally done. It's ready to go. I mean, sorry, the, the entrepreneur says, look, I've already made this. It's ready to go. I've got growth margin retention. I've got attachment to your ICP. You can see that this business is already ready to go right now. You can buy it right now. Or you can look at what you're doing right now. You can buy my company for $48 million, which is absolutely done. Or you can keep, you know, sort of gambling on your ability to do it and spend 50 million and still not maybe not have a product while we're getting market share over here and may sell to one of your competitors. Right. Right. How much equity had you invested in that company? Uh, we invested, I think in total, it was between three and 5 million. I can't give you the exact number, but it's between three and 5 million. Well, and so in this scenario, what you have to look at is you have to look at the, you know, these, the people that bought this business, it cost them, a, let's say it cost them, a, a, I'm just using the, the math here and, you know, so the numbers aren't on, but 
you know, let's say it costs them a dollar to launch a customer on their platform. Mm -hmm. This other platform cost them a nickel. Mm -hmm. So right there, they were going to save 95 cents on every dollar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On top of that, they could get to market faster than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And this other company had proven out because we started that in the North Star and all the way through that their ICP, that the buyer's in, uh, ideal customer was the exact same. So we already proved that their customer would buy this new product. So from their position, it was a no brainer. Mm -hmm. You know, from their position, it was like, well, hold on a sec. Let's see how many customers do we have? Well, we have 5,000 customers. And if we launch this, these customers on the platform that we, we don't even know if we can build yet, how much is that going to cost? A dollar. How much does it cost on these guys? A nickel. Then are these guys ready? Yeah, totally ready. How long is your engineering team saying it's going to be before you're ready? Another year. I mean, it's a no brainer, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So they look at it and they go, well, hell, you know, we launched, we buy this other company. We're going to make that $48 million back in the first year. Mm -hmm. So the, the repayment period far exceeds, uh, you know, the risk that's involved in the acquisition. So from their position, it was absolutely a no brainer. And this is the tip, very typical. If you look at acquisitions by the folks that are buying Adobe's and, you know, all these folks, it's the same scenario, right? I mean, Adobe bought Magento for billions because Adobe sat back and said, we need a e-commerce e marketing platform. These guys have it. They have revenue. We have the same ideal customer. If we buy this platform and put them on it, we're going to make our money back and then some, you know, over the next, you know, between 12 and, you know, between one year and five years. That's pretty typical. They want to get their money back between one and five years. If that model fits out, then making an acquisition is a no-brainer. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're raising money on the understanding this whole the mechanic behind your wrong, you're going to be raising more money than you need. You're going to be spending that money on getting customers that may not be the right customer. I mean, it's not like when you decide to sell your company, you're like, okay, let's sell. That doesn't work that way. It takes years. Mm -hmm. so you have to start planning from the very beginning. You can't just say, oh, it's been five years. Okay, now let's sell. It doesn't work that way. Maybe all of your customers now are the wrong customers. Yeah. Maybe your technology hasn't been built right for your buyers. So you have to think about that right up front. And that's what I call the North Star. Your exit plan, basically. It's more than an exit plan because, I mean, you have to start with the end in mind. So you have to start with thinking about your exit strategy. But it's way more than that. It's about how you're going to build your whole business the whole time. What kind of customers are you going to get? And what kind of customers you're going to get tells you what kind of software you need to build and what those features need to be and how much money you're going to raise and where are you going to spend the money. <laughs> how long are you going to be building this? How big are you going to get it? What are your growth margin retention numbers that you're shooting for in the first place? And do all of those things align with the buying behavior of your ideal buyers that you've, uh, that you're connecting yourself to three to five different companies that you think you'd be able to sell your company to, right? I mean, it's totally different. If you're selling to a private equity, you're trying to raise EBITDA, right? They buy companies that are in profit. Yes. If you're trying to buy a strategic, they don't necessarily care about profit. What they care about is, you know, growth margin retention at the gross margin level because they're interested in selling your product to their customers. So if you don't know these things right up front, when you first start, it's very, very easy to drive your company off the map, right? I mean, yeah. if you're trying to cross the ocean and you're one degree off on your compass, you're going to end up in a different continent. 
Right, right. And right. the North Star, that's where I came up with the term the North Star, is that North Star, you aimed at that the whole time and you constantly align yourself to that. Yeah. So that you're yeah, constantly getting closer to your acquisition. Yeah, I know I'm oversimplifying here, but I do, you have a great point. You know, I do hear from entrepreneurs all the time, you know, well, maybe we'll sell to a private equity fund or maybe we'll sell to a strategic buyer. They really don't know you know, what, who their buyer is going to be. And they haven't really, you know, defined a plan to target that type of buyer. Um, you know, they want an exit, uh, you know, if it's a, especially if it's a company that's been funded by VC money or, you know, even, you know, uh, some sort of, you know, syndication beyond the founders own money, you know, it's likely that that money needs to be returned within some time frame. So there is an exit an exit strategy is necessary. And, uh, you know, and they don't really, and most entrepreneurs really don't know what it's going to be. And, and you're absolutely right. It, it defines the path that you should be taking. Right. Like you think about once you determine that your business is a product to another business yeah. and you ask yourself, would you build a product without having a customer? Of course not. I mean, who would do that? Right. Who would just say, I'm going to build a product without understanding who you're building it for. And if your whole business business is going to be acquired by somebody else, then doesn't that mean that you should be thinking about your business's buyer, just like you think about your product's buyer, mm-hmm. right? And shouldn't you do that early on mm-hmm. instead of waiting until after you've built the product to find your customer? Right. I mean, it's common sense, right? So this is, I get into, com- into uh, conversations all the time with uh, other investors and they'll say, wow, it's too early to do that. And I go, that's because you're an investor. You're not an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. I've done this 15 times. Yeah. Right. So, you know, from my perspective, I look at it and go, look, there are some scenarios where you listen to your investors and there are a lot of scenarios where you don't. And that's because you're talking to people that don't understand what it's like to build a business. They understand what it's like to invest in a business, but Mm -hmm. they've never been down in the dirt building a business. A lot of times, And I find oftentimes, unfortunately, that investors or people that are advisors that are like one hit wonders, you know, they made some big business go one time um, and then they start taking advice from these people. Mm -hmm. And it's the wrong advice, just flat out. It's the wrong advice. Oh, don't start thinking about that right now. I want you focused on building your business. So you're going to be building your business in the wrong direction, right? It's like, it doesn't make sense. So... I get into debates with them a lot on this stuff, you know, and I'm, and I always win these debates every single time. And usually they will change their, uh, their whole perspective. Yeah. Usually yeah. they'll sit back and go, man, shit, that you're right. And they go back to their portfolio and they start looking at them and they go, okay, well, shit, I've got four businesses that are five years deep already. I've got five, six million in these companies and who's their buyer. They don't know. Did, who's the customer that you have this customer who's yeah. your buyer's customer we, right. we don't know right. and they're just starting that process and they realize that now they've added on years Correct. to their ability to exit which means that you have to invest more business or more cash and if you invest more cash you kick out the exit anymore because the multiple has to go up the valuation has to go up to make sure that the investors get their money and the entrepreneurs get their money and this thing just keeps going and going and going until the business becomes more expensive then it's worth. Right, right. You know, so this is a, a, this is like a death roll. I see it all the time. 
Yeah. I mean, you could certainly, uh, a lot, there's a, you know, you've covered a lot of great points. I mean, I, I've seen firsthand, you know, one of the other things you mentioned earlier in the conversation where, you know, a company uh, is not looking to sell to a strategic buyer. Instead, they keep, you know, investing, investing, investing to grow EBITDA. And before you know it, you know, the asking price for that company is so high, there's no buyer interested in willing to pay that, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that happens all the time. And, and, you know, if you don't know, you know, how, when, how much, who, you know, and why uh, somebody would buy your business, then it's very easy to keep raising capital and, you, you know, get your business to the point where, you, you know, you're going to end up selling it for less than the investors put into it. Right. right. And, yeah. you know, you as the entrepreneur are going to get squeezed. So, you let know. Me, yeah. Let, let me, let me kind of, um, um, you know, take a step back for a second. So boss capital, if I'm reading between the lines in this conversation, um, you're more focused on um, selling to strategic buyers than you are to private equity groups. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Except for, uh, I mean, yeah, you know, you get the multiples off strategics. Yeah. So, you know, you, so you spend less money and less time and you get higher returns on selling to a strategic. And that's because going back to what I said earlier, right? If they already have the customer, yeah. acquiring the customer is the most expensive thing, then logically selling to a strategic is, is I mean, it's obviously the best way to go. Yeah. So to, so to, so to kind of touch upon some bullet points that would, describe your business model, you know, you're, you're, you're primarily focused on opportunities that involve developing software. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So, so. <laughs> we focus on software companies that have prescription revenue, you know, subscription revenue, you know, subscription month over month revenue is, you know, our model. Mm -hmm. We focus on businesses that, primarily fix a problem. Don't take advantage of an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, we fe focus on businesses that are an inch wide, mile deep, meaning, you know, really unique, you know, kind of funky stuff that everybody's passing on because everybody's so focused on the, the sexy stuff, like the Uber kind of things. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You know, and we don't, you know, if somebody comes to, if I look at a portfolio company that comes to me and they're like, Oh, we're, we're going to sell for a billion dollars. That's the last conversation we have. I mean, the last year there were 113 unicorns and there were tens of thousands of businesses trying to be a unicorn. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're building a business and you're trying to be a unicorn, you really have to step back and think to yourself, is, are, are you actually an Airbnb or yeah. an Uber? Like, do, are you actually like that? Because right. the chances are you're not. And so you should be focused on something like 50 or 100 million. So we do fifty hundred million dollar transactions, but we do them all the time, and we do them with companies that are fixing a problem, and we sell to a strategic. When you say fifty to one hundred million dollar transactions, that's the exit that you're looking for. Is that correct? That's right. So if you look at the failure rate, this is part of the study. So I've done you know hundreds of interviews. I've interviewed uh, entrepreneurs, investors. I've interviewed the Navy SEALs, the first fighting wing of the Air Force, congressmen, senators. I mean, I've, I've interviewed everybody about processes and business and all this. I mean, just, it's, it's been three years of interviews mm -hmm. to figure this stuff out. And what you find out is that there is a huge drop-off of 
the businesses that, that succeed at around 50 million. And there's another one at 100 million. Big, big drop off. So if you're building a business and you say, okay, I'm going to go from, you know, I'm going to build a unicorn. You have to pass through a gauntlet <laughs> of, of, of situations that you could real, that the chances are the odds, if you're gambling in a casino, the odds are not in your favor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you are literally gambling. Whereas if you build a business and sell around 50, you're, you've got pretty good odds. Mm-hmm. Right? So what that means going back to the North stars, you have to back into that number. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't raise 50 million and then say, oh, yeah, I'm going to sell for 50 million. Right. So you have to think about that from the beginning. And this is what I teach with boss. Right. You know, the business so, operating support system, which so has been picked up by a bunch of universities now. So, you know, yeah. I've done it for congressmen. I mean, you know. Yeah, I, 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 I see the value. I mean, and um, so if I'm to reverse engineer some of the numbers you've given me, you're looking for. 50 to a hundred million dollar exits. Um, and you're looking for, you know, one to three year, um, and, and maybe I'm wrong on this, a one to three year, uh, investment term. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, am I right that you're probably putting in, you know, maybe not boss directly, but all the investors in these deals are putting in, you know, 15 to $30 million. No. No. So this is, this is part of the thing. You don't have to raise as much money if you, if you do it very, if you're, if you're smart about it. Right. So we end up putting in like 5 million. Okay. You know, we'll put in five, maybe six, but typically about 5 million we'll sell for, you know, 50 typically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's the model, right? That's how we build it out. And so what we do between there is the magic that, that I've been doing on my own that I have now, you know, that Forbes is going to be publishing the book at the end of this year. Uh, it's my way of giving back, you know, to entrepreneurs to try to help with wealth distribution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You say, look, this is how I do it. Here you go. Here's a whole book on exactly how I do this. And, and I think of it as open source. So, you know, when I teach it to the universities, you know, the, the plan is for some of the universities to sort of take it on, on as their own, like an open source software would be. Right, right. And then really try to just give it away to everybody and say, look, this is what I've done. It works for me. Uh, try it yourself. And if not, you know, at least it'll cause people to think about what they're doing, like this conversation with you, Steve. Yeah. You know? It's like getting people to say, well, man, maybe I should step back and think about what I'm doing because you can't go backwards. You raise that money. You can't go backwards. You worked on your business for 10 years for a certain customer. It's not like you could be like, okay, we're going to change our customer. Right. I mean, you know, this is, this is, these are decisions that you have to think about like day one. Right. Right. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I think for me, um, one of the reasons what you say resonates so much is I, I come from a private equity background. I, you know, worked as outside legal counsel for private equity group, um, out here in Southern California for a number of years. And, um, then internally in one of the companies they inquired for a, acquired for a while, and then uh, since then as an attorney, kind of servicing uh, entrepreneurs that are funded by private equity, and you know the concept of selling to strategic buyers is a little bit more foreign to me, but in listening to you, uh, very eye opening to be honest, uh, because I feel like in this era, you know, and this brings me to 
kind of one of the themes that I like to cover uh, in, in all the podcast interviews I do. But in this era of disruption, where things are moving so quickly, and some of these problems, you know, we talk about solving kind of in abstract on this podcast, some of these problems we talk about solving there, you know, they may not be there in two years, you know, we may be on to an entirely different set of problems. So, you know, you got to move quickly. And, and, you know, the concept of invest raising more money to build revenue and sell to a private equity group is actually um, to your detriment for a reason we haven't even discussed. And that is that, you know, disruption may make your business obsolete or less desirable by the time you do all that, you know? Um, yeah. Or, you know, or you have this too, you have the scenario of, you know, when you sent me over the questions, I was thinking about that. And I was like, one of the things I think about all the time is that every time there's a disruption, it yields new opportunities, right? So you have one drop and that drop in the lake equals all these little wakes that spin off. And those little rings that come off are full of other opportunities. Right. And so, you know, the disruptor oftentimes doesn't make the best, I mean, they don't get the, the best benefit off of that. It's all the people on the outside that get the best benefits. Think about like the big ones, like the internet or social media. I mean, just think of social media. How many agencies are selling social media? How many people have software now that work with social media? Right. So there are a lot of big, big, big opportunities that come off of disruptions. So right. sometimes, you know, it's like you're an ambulance chaser, right? Sometimes you're just sitting there waiting for a big disruption to happen, like yeah. sustainable energy. And you look at the outside and you go, oh, look at all this stuff that's spinning out of it. Even if you think about the idea of startups themselves is a disruption. We've right. never had so many people doing startups. And so now you have all these businesses that are built specifically for startups coming off of that. Right, right. right? So, you know, I think that the concept of like, oh, there's a disruption and somebody thinking, oh, well, you know, okay, well, that disruption means that the opportunity isn't there. They're looking in the wrong place. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, most of the people I talk to for our podcast are benefiting by disruption. They're either causing the disruption themselves or somehow benefiting from it. Um, I think we're living in perhaps the era of greatest opportunity in the history of our country because of the speed at which disruption is happening. Um, you know, if you look at the companies that are in the S&P today and, you know, they're very different than they were 20 or 30 years ago. You know? Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so... I. You, we've talked a little bit about uh, your background as an entrepreneur. We've talked a little bit about um, your, you know, your, your operating system and the book you've got coming out. Tell me about, you know, Boss Capital's, um, you know, investment goals in the coming year. I mean, are you, how many deals are you looking to do? How much capital do you look to deploy? Um, you know, little, if, if there's anything specific that you're looking for out there. I mean, we look for software. Uh, companies that are subscription-based revenue models that fix a problem. Right. And, you know, at a top line, that's it. We look for businesses that we can sell for about 50 million in three years and return to investors about two to five X. Okay. Um, we don't care if the entrepreneur has very much experience because we add that we have a whole bunch of subject matter experts as part of our group that are entrepreneurs like me that have done this before. Right. That we can bring in and help these entrepreneurs out. 
we don't just raise the first round, we do all the follow-ons. So if we get involved in a business, we ride it all the way out to an exit that leaves the entrepreneur with more time to focus on the business because you know typically they're spending 40, 60% of their time trying to raise capital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know, we remove that off of them, we do their board meetings, their board decks, their updates, we handle all the investors and we work in the business to really help them uh, succeed. So we're very, very different you know, in that we really play a role. I mean, a lot of times investors will say, yeah, you know, we give you help and really what they mean is they're gonna sit on a board meeting every six months. Right. And, you know, we're not, we're, I mean, I'm on the phone with my portfolio companies every day, you know, and I'm helping them solve problems and I'll deploy, if they need a sales rep, I'll go get a sales rep from something else uh, that I've done in the past, or if they need whatever, right. We, yeah. we get in there and actually make things happen for them. How um, many, how many companies are you invested in at a given time? So we do about, I look at about 200 deals a month. My website is gregoryshepherd.com. People come, that's usually how it comes in. They don't go to Boss Capital. They go to my website okay. um, because, you know, I write for Entrepreneur and Forbes and Fortune and, you know, all these, this, these things. So people hear about me through things like your podcast. They come into the website. They submit something there. I get about 200 of those. Out of those, I look to do about one every three months. Uh, typical transactions are between 500 and 3 million in the first round. Typically the businesses do three rounds and we sell in three years and we sell at about a $50 million mark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the, the formula. And I, you know, you know, we tell them that, you know, when they come in, boss capital is a very, very boutique exclusive. Uh, we have 27 uh, investors that are all worth between 50 and hundred million. We've got four billionaires. Um, and it's very, we don't let investors just come in like other groups do. If, if you come to us and you say, we, you want to uh, become an investor, we're going to put you through the same, uh, sort of vetting process as we would put an entrepreneur through. Because one of the things, you know, you know, when we talk about the things I've learned is that, you know, you go to a lot of these groups and they have like doctors and lawyers and people that have, you know, picked up some money along the way somehow. Uh, in real estate or whatever, and they're not savvy investors and they can be a real hassle to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ultra and I have not high net worth individuals that are used to doing business that understand how things are done are easy to manage. So we don't take on investors that don't understand the game uh, because they can be very difficult. So, um, you know, it's a very high end. In fact, if you go to the website, you can't even get in without a username and password. Mm-hmm. because we don't even want people getting in there. So mm-hmm. the only way to get a hold uh, to get through to me, you know, is to uh, go to my website. So it's a very, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very boutique uh, scenario. And that's, that's our model to answer your question. So you, yeah. So you look at, if I'm doing the math right, you look at maybe 600 companies before you invest in one. Yeah, that's about right. Or more sometimes. Oh, that's incredible. So, so every day, I imagine you're going through a deck every day. Or deck. Oh, I go through. Yeah. I mean, I probably, I have a call typically about every hour. Um, and I spend about 30 minutes. So I'll go through, I'll talk to probably six, six to eight entrepreneurs a day. I probably look at 10 decks a day. I mean, it's, I have a whole uh, CRM system set up just to manage the flow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a process. So, 
yeah, I mean, I'll look at, you know, yeah, it's about five, 600 deals to find one, one deal, which is also part of it. You know, we're, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, and you really want to find um, the right entrepreneur that has the right disposition, the right deal that fits our business model. You know, there's a lot of sort of uh, individual little points that I look at that, that tell me whether or not this is the right deal for us, you know, mm-hmm. and because we put so much energy into them, we just can't do that many, right? It's just, you know, if I'm personally dealing with that and keeping up with the deal flow and talking to entrepreneurs and all of that, there's not, you know, you, you can't do more than one every three months. Sure. Can't sure. Do it. Yeah. If you want to have the level of involvement that you're describing. So going right, back or the level of success that you're, that you're considering is acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so going back to the very beginning of our conversation, you know, you mentioned, you know, it's more important really to pick the horse than it is the jockey. So as you're looking at these decks, you know, you're looking at, you know, like you said, you know, the problem that's being solved, you know, whether this is a subscription based model or has that potential, you know, whether it fits for strategic acquisition, all those things that kind of fit with, you know, defining the horse, so to speak. Um, are there things that you look for with respect to the management team? Like, are there, you know, deal breakers with respect to maybe certain traits the management team might have or certain internal structures? I look for people that are very open and humble, you know, so, you know, I'll talk to a management team and sometimes they've been told um, so you have to kind of see through that, that they have to answer every question. They have to have an answer for everything. Yeah. You know, so it, it, that's not what I look for. Right. That, that tells me that they have thought through it, but it also tells me that, you know, maybe they're not going to be as open to listening. Right. So sometimes you talk to a, a management team and you say, so what do you, have you thought about this? Yes. And they sort of have this canned response. And so you can see through that and you can go, okay, they've got a canned response. Somebody told them they have to answer this question this way. I get it. And then I kind of pry a little bit more to learn, to learn about how open they are to seeing things a little differently. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's a really big deal, right? Your ability to, to really have a relationship with them and have a candid, honest relationship with them. Right. And that's really critical. I mean, you know, as an investor, the way that we do any things anyway, it's, it's, you, you, you're striking a relationship, you're getting married to this person for this three-year period of time. And breakups are really awful, right? Divorces are awful. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that you can get along with them, that you can communicate, that, you know, there's sort of the ability to mind meld with them. Right. And so what I do is I spend a lot of time just having conversations with them to see if, if, if they're open uh, to, to seeing things a little differently and, you know, you get the ones that are know-it-alls, you know, you get the people that are used to being the smartest person in the room Um, and, you know, this sort of thing. So I kind of like try to look at the entrepreneur and see if I feel like I can actually have a a, a relationship that allows for iterations and allows for a more agile approach to the business itself, not just the software. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So an openness, a willingness to learn, humility, those are all important character traits. Yeah, you know, you sometimes you talk to an entrepreneur and, and you know, they have this 
vision of the way that they want their business to be. And maybe the facts are that that isn't necessarily what's going to get them across the finish line. And you don't want to be in a situation where you're having a debate with them. You want to, you want to be able to say, look, here are the facts. They should be able to look at that. I mean, you know, one of the, the, the things that I focus on is, you know, principle over position. So the principle over that person's position on something, you should be able to take your idea, put it on a desk and judge it just like everybody else. And everybody else should be able to judge it and you shouldn't get offended. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I call a rule is, you know, principle over position. And another one I have is uh, important over urgent. A lot of times people will say, you know, that the, the urgent thing are the things that happen when the important things are ignored. Right. (laughs) So a lot of times, you know, you have a fire burning at your business yeah. And you go try to put out the fire and your five more fires are being lit up behind you and you're not focused on why did it get lit in the first place. So I use an analogy with the fire department. You live in Southern California, so there's a lot of fires. Yeah. And what they do is they do fire lines. They don't try to put out the fire. They try to figure out how to keep it from spreading. They'll let the fire burn and they'll burn, they'll create fire lines. Yeah. You know, if it's a square, then one fire line is 25% contained. So if I'm talking to an entrepreneur, I want to learn how they think about uh, uh, these situations, right? How do they handle, you know, do they think about important over urgent, first of all, and if something urgent comes up, how do they think about handling that situation, right? Do they think about setting other people up for success, not just their employees themselves, their investors, their customers, their vendors, everybody, right? And I think about, do they sort of think about the concept of, the principle of what you're trying to do over your way of trying to get that done. And those are sort of some of the mining questions I ask. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. That'll give you great insight into their capabilities to lead for sure. Um, well, Greg, I appreciate all the time, fascinating conversation and, uh, I definitely would love to follow up with you in uh, a year or so and just kind of catch up, see what's new. Definitely after the release of your book, and, um, you know, also maybe share some insights as to, you know, what's going on on our end. And um, who knows, you might be able to, to offer us some guidance as well at Glassbox. It would be an honor. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I know there's a lot of work that goes into uh, doing a podcast and production and time and everything. And I really appreciate it. So, you know, what you're doing for entrepreneurs and allowing folks like me to come on and help them out. It's, it's a good thing that you're doing that. Much appreciated.